Welcome to Global Data Pod, JP Morgan's podcast, which goes through our key views and research pertaining to the global economy. I'm Bruce Kasman. With me this week is Mike Froley, Joe Lupton, Alan Monks, and Greg Fuzesi. And as you can guess, this is a week to talk about central banks in the developed market economies. We had a Fed meeting yesterday. We had Bank of England ECB meetings. We had some other meetings which are worth bringing into the conversation. And I guess the, the general observation is that developed market central banks are now on the move. Uh, question is, uh, what's changing? How fast are they going to move? And where do we think there are real differences to identify uh, between what they're doing and what the market thinks? And perhaps if we have some time also to, to think about how the spillovers and linkages between the developed market economies and the emerging markets, which have already been well on the move, uh, is certainly worth considering. Um, but let's start with the big dog, Mike, the Fed. Uh, Fed didn't surprise us that much, but they did make make a move. And the rhetoric, the conversation we got from Chair Powell was interesting. So why don't we start by you just giving us your take on what we learned this week about the, uh, the Fed. Um, yeah, I mean, as you say, as you said, they didn't really surprise uh, because this was a pretty well signaled meeting in the two or three weeks leading up to the meeting. They said pretty bluntly that they were going to uh, hasten the pace of tapering and that they were doing that with an intent uh, to give them the option to lift off earlier. And I think while they didn't quite signal their intentions on rate hikes as clearly as they did their intentions on tapering, I think most people expected that they would, um, you know, signal a couple of rate hikes next year, which they did. They a very strong consensus around three hikes next year, which is very consistent with our views of a liftoff of, of uh, around June or something like that. Um, you know, I think the message from Powell was, uh, I guess in my mind, what was most interesting was, um, what precipitated this big change. And I think he was pretty clear that it was really the labor market. So from March to, you know, early in the fall, they were pretty content to look through the inflation numbers. But when they saw uh, wage growth start to pick up, the unemployment rate fall more than expected, labor force participation not showing up, that they, you know, kind of jettisoned the transitory uh, narrative, and I think that was um, again not surprising, but I think it was made very explicit and honestly by by Powell yesterday. Let me jump in there, Mike, because I think it's it's really important that you identify the labor market and not the run of inflation prints as the as the key driving force in terms of how the Fed is shifting. Not that we not that we or Powell ignored the inflation reports. Yeah. Nobody's trying to suggest that. But I think that that becomes an important issue for how you think about the Fed going forward. So the Fed is signaling it's going to start probably around mid-year. But, you know, they move things earlier, but they don't have a lot of cumulative tightening. And when you think about the, um, the labor market dynamic that you're, you know, analyzing and forecasting, and you think about the Fed's view here, is, is there a, an alignment in the way you think about where we're going to be a year, year and a half from now and the way the Fed is, is currently uh, uh, talking to us? I think when it comes to the labor market, uh, at least on that specific 
topic, I think we are fairly well aligned, which is like the Fed, we have been a little surprised and disappointed by labor supply this year. Um, and therefore we expect uh, the unemployment rate to continue uh, declining given that, you know, we like most people expect pretty good growth next year. Um, so I think in that respect, we're not too far off. I mean, you, you kind of point out something that is, you know, a bit of a puzzle, which is why um, beyond next year, they really have a pretty shallow uh, tightening path. And, you know, you can kind of, I think as we were discussing earlier this morning to say, well, you know, these are kind of very conjectural things about something very far ahead. And, uh, and you know, everyone's forecast three years in advance is going to be way off, but at least in terms of internal consistency of the, the forecast beyond uh, next year, it is interesting and uh, a little puzzling why they have, um, you know, so little tightening, uh, given the expected path of the labor market. Well, let's, let's be specific here. They've got the unemployment rate dropping to 3.5 next year, and that's consistent with their their three three hikes. And then they've got the unemployment rate not moving over yeah. the following following two years. So there's a, there's a sense that some combination of macro performance and labor supply dynamics uh, combines with the Fed, you know, doing three tightenings, and then everything kind of just you know, gets to exactly where they need it to be, which is a labor market, which is at full employment or maybe even a little beyond. And you get um, stability and you get a stability in inflation, you know, settling back down towards 2%. I mean, it's, yeah, I, yes, I don't want to get too cute about the forecast because we know how much, um, mm -hmm. you know, that that's not going to be the ending driver of the, uh, of the story, but it is a pretty, you know, miraculous soft landing they've got built in here with relatively limited amount of work on their part. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a soft landing without any, uh, <laughs> uh, without any real tightening. And so it's kind of, it's hard to build a narrative around that. I, you know, and I suppose the, the most generous thing you can say is look, there, there, any signal we should take from yesterday is just about, you know, the horizon in which they have any visibility, which is maybe the next, you know, several months. Um, and I think in that regard, at least, you know, if we, if we kind of narrow our focus to that, um, it becomes a little clearer, which is, you know, they, there were no surprises in that kind of narrower focus, which is that they're picking up the pace of tight, of, of tapering and that they, you know, want to get off of, uh, zero bounds sometime, you know, in the middle quarters of next year. Okay. In in terms of what their tolerance level for inflation is, there certainly is an issue here having taken out that that message about overshooting, which is partly reflecting the fact that we're already overshooting. But do you do you have a sense of like where where the level of inflation is that over the next two years would the Fed would say this is this is too much? Is it is it two and a half? Is it three? Where where do you kind of feel their their comfort level in terms of what what inflation level we can settle at and they can be be comfortable without having to go more restrictive on policy. Yeah, I mean, I would I, I would say um, at least two and a half, just given their projections for 
next year and the following years. I mean, next year they're at two six, two seven headline core, and not aggressively tightening. So, um, so they do, you know, seem to have a, a decent amount of tolerance. You know, look, the vice chair said recently that a repeat of this year would be a policy, you know, would be unacceptable. So that's probably not saying that's a, too not much. a very high bar. To... <laughs> yeah. So that's not saying too much, but, um, you know, it doesn't look like low to, you know, low to mid twos is something that gets them too bothered. Uh, and again, you know, I think we're trying to pin down a number when there are really 17 or 19 numbers, depending on you know how many vacancies we have. Um, and I think, you know, what we learned over the past six weeks or uh, 13 weeks is that uh, the tolerance is also going to be colored by what they see going on in the rest of the economy and in underlying inflation pressures rather than just the, the, the prints we get. So one other thing, just before we kind of broaden the conversation from the Fed, um, what's your thinking about balance sheet policy here? Obviously, they accelerated the tapering and they're suggesting they'll be done uh, by March. But when we go past March, um, how is the balance sheet going to uh, evolve? Uh, where is their thinking on that evolving? Um, I mean, their thinking uh, is so, I mean, the easy thing to say is a couple of easy things to say is that they no longer see a need to have a pause between um, ending tapering. Uh, and so that does open the door potentially to a March liftoff if things get you know out of hand here. Um, and then the other thing to say is that beyond that, no decision has been made. Um, and then I think the third easy thing to say is that even if they stick with the old playbook of 20, uh, well, that was devised in 2014, um, that we should expect runoff to start at least in calendar time sooner than in the last cycle, because in the last cycle, it took them uh, two and a half years to get to 1% on the funds rate. You know, if we're anywhere close to right, it should take more like less than about a year. Right? Less than a year even, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, you know, I guess the third thing is, you know, Powell said they're basically going to discuss it over the next two meetings. So um, I suppose we'll get a more definitive answer in March, though I would think and suspect we get some hints of where they're leaning and, and speeches and minutes and so forth. Okay. Uh, before I turn to Europe, let's turn to Joe for a second and, say, and ask this question. We've been watching EM central banks tighten for uh, quite a few months now. And, uh, you know, normally you would argue that the Fed is a is a trigger or a catalyst. Um, so as we see what the Fed told us yesterday and we think about our EM uh, central bank outlook, does this change things in a, in a material way? Are we going to be putting more pressure on, on central banks outside of the pressure we're putting on the ECB? And we'll talk to Greg about that, that later. No, not, not as much. And I think it, it, it largely reflects the fact that the, the kind of, at least the bulk of the EM central banks and call it a, a largely the, the lower yielding and, and maybe even a couple of the higher yielding central banks have been behaving in a way that it 
has a flavor of more kind of traditional, call it developed market central bank setting. And that is we went through an epic downturn. They, they cut aggressively through that period, just like the, you know, the Fed and ECB did. And then as we move through the course of this year, there's a sense that the recovery was, was moving along. It, it, maybe they started to feel a little bit more pressure on the headline inflation side while the Fed was waging its transitory war that they've kind of given in on more recently. And so you got some earlier moves from EM central banks to normalize from very low levels. Uh, and as a result, as we move into next year, they've kind of got a bit of a, a, of a head start on that normalization process, which is largely a, a response to the same things that the Fed and, and Bank of England and other developed market central banks are responding to. So it all feels very much like the, the kind of normal central bank um, kind of setting to the fundamentals that you would expect. Um, I do think there's obviously, a, a, you know, there's a couple of central banks that are, remain in that um, unique high yield space, call it, you know, Brazil, uh, Turkey is on a, on its own kind of planet there. Um, you know, but leaving those aside, I would say that if the fed starts moving, it's, it's just the fed is responding to the same things that's influencing, um, you know, other central banks. And so it's not going to be, have this kind of taper tantrum type effect that you saw, uh, you know, back in that earlier, that earlier episode in the previous cycle. So now there's another issue that kind of comes into the central bank uh, story, and, and that is COVID and Omicron specifically. And it's pretty clear from Powell yesterday that the Fed isn't uh, expressing too much concern. It certainly didn't affect the way they, they, they signaled to us. Um, but we had expected the Bank of England to be pausing here in the face of what is is quite concerning news in terms of what we're seeing in the UK. But the Bank of England decided to go ahead anyway and tighten policy. Uh, so what do we learn from that decision, Alan? I think the, the threat from Omicron feels like it's been greater in the UK. We, we've already had restrictions that have come in and we might be close to seeing more restrictions over the next couple of weeks. So for the Bank of England to be raising rates in that backdrop, I think you know, it has come as a surprise. Um, of course, it's not a, you know, a complete surprise when you consider where inflation is and, and how the labor market has been tightening, but the timing of the decision. Uh, but if you, you, if know, you look at the, what Mike said a few minutes ago about how, in many respects, it's the labor market data that's been surprising and driving the Fed. I mean, isn't there a case to be made that that's more than anything also been the, the thing that's been surprising and driving the Bank of England here? You could have said that yeah. last month, though, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the real issue is that, you know, I mean, it, and even before last month, there was a case for, uh, you know, policy being tightened. So I think, you know, the decision itself is not a surprise, but the timing is. And it does, I think, suggest that, you know, the Bank of England, the initial narrative was that labour markets tightening, you know, the, the case for operating emergency stimulus is, is not there anymore. That, did, that justification for the decision today is still there, but you also feel that things may be moved up a notch in the sense that if you look at various wage measures, it's still early days, but those hadn't moved until just recently, perhaps over the past uh, you know, couple of weeks or so. If you look at various data 
measures, you know, wage settlements, average earnings numbers, they have actually started to surprise on the upside. So it's not just the risk that wage growth can start to move. We are actually now starting to see that, uh, that coming through in the data. And I think on inflation expectations as well, I mean, the, you know, the Bank of England's been saying, let's read through high inflation in the near term. It's transitory. We don't want to overreact to that. But what it has done is to heighten their sensitivity to some of the other indicators, the labor market in the indicators and inflation expectations. And now those are starting to move. So I think we are now starting to have a debate in the UK about whether you know, the Bank of England can stick to its gradual tightening narrative that it's got or whether it actually has to move a little bit more quickly. Well, let's just talk to your narrative for a second. You did change, at least modestly, your profile for how much they do. And why don't you just describe that? But also, what degree are you worried that the um, the virus drag in the first quarter could end up being being more severe? So even if it didn't stop the Bank of England now, that we might be uh, talking somewhat differently as we go through the first quarter, given given what kind of you know hit to growth we might be facing. Yeah, I mean, I changed the call today to put in an extra hike for, for next year. So I've got another three that would take policy rates to 1% by, by the end of next year. I mean, the, so you're one upping Mike, you put more in for the Bank of England through the end of next year than what Mike has got. Mike, just remember that when you think about what to do next. <laughs> okay, it turned into a race. <laughs> I think clearly that the near term issue is, is the downside risk from Omicron. Um, I mean, I put in the next height for uh, first or first quarter of next year, which does feel a little bit early if that drag from Omicron, you know, stretches in, into the early months of next year. But I think that one way of reading this is that the, the virus threat, it poses, yes, a, a very clear sort of near term risk. But given how rapidly infections are rising in the UK, um, you know, you've got to wonder whether this is going to be a short, sharp shock. Uh, where a lot of people, you know, get the virus very, very quickly. Um, there's a rapid rollout of booster jabs as well. And, you know, things feel bad now, but could the situation actually turn around pretty quickly as you're getting into next year? Infections starting to, to come down. And then the same old debate of what's happened to the labour market, high inflation backdrop, that, that returns and, you know, continues to put pressure on the Bank of England to resume the, the tightening cycle. I think this is actually, this is, there's an interesting a nuance here that's important, which is for the, for the most part for the Bank of England, for the Fed, I think for the Norges Bank, which also hiked uh, today, um, you know, maybe for a couple others in the EM. Right now, the Omicron pandemic headwinds kind of writ more broadly are viewed as a downside risk to the outlook. And they're willing to, to kind of look through it but because it's a downside risk that maybe skews the risk distribution a little bit, it does mean that if in four weeks time, we're feeling like things are, you know, a fair bit worse, that that potentially, maybe that's a question, should require a recalibration because it's not baked into their kind of modal view of the world. At least Powell did not seem too phased by it, kind of giving it a little bit of short shrift. Uh, obviously, Bank of England moving today, nor just Bank moving today, willing to, to kind of say, yes, this is a risk, but we're still going to be moving here. That could change, obviously, in four weeks' time if things got a lot worse, uh, in the sense it's not baked into the, the current, current projections. Um, 
so I think actually it cuts both ways, though, because I think what, you know, Alan has been saying is that the central bank community has been willing to to look through this, at least in terms of thinking about short drags that are, um, you know, potentially uh, sharp, but also get followed by big rebounds. And I think, you know, this becomes kind of a, a complicating force here, which is the degree to which you you are willing to look through a drag. And at least for now, the Bank of England obviously is saying that that's, that's going to be uh, the case. Right. That's, that's the view. That's the modal view, which means you're carrying with you a downside risk. As, as I said, it's a nuanced view, but if the, if the view gets worse on that and that downside risk feels like it's materializing more, then you have to recalibrate at that point. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess the Bank of England would also, and I said this in, in the minutes today, when we're talking about downside risk, I mean, that's the downside risk to growth. It's not clear that the inflation risks are to the downside. And that's true in the near term because it could exacerbate uh, you know, bottleneck pressure, supply shortages. It may also be true in the medium term as well, because you would look at the labor market as a you know, barometer of where, where those inflation risks are over a kind of two-year horizon. And if we do get renewed restrictions coming in in the UK, you probably would expect greater fiscal support to accompany that and, and limit the shock to the labor market. So that might mean that, you know, actually you've got the growth hit coming in in the near term, but it hasn't actually done a lot of damage, lasting damage to the labor market, which takes some of the heat out of uh, what we're seeing now. So why don't we, we, we're gonna to turn to the ECB in a second, but why don't we just ask the question, I'll ask it of both of you guys. We got the Fed moving three times in 2022 in the forecast, our forecast, you've got the Bank of England moving three times in 2022, having moved uh, uh, today, is that right? Have I got that right, Alan? That's right, um, yeah. What do you see as the risk bias to your forecast, more or less? I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to say probably a little bit more if uh, if we've moved beyond that stage of of just wanting to remove pandemic stimulus and actually inflation is is kind of you know, out of control might be too strong a, a phrase to use, but if if we're going through next year with nearly six percent inflation and the first half of the of the year is is very important for wage settlements as well uh, and determination for, for a lot of people. So I guess there's a greater risk of second round effects, which might put more pressure on the Bank of England to, to go more quickly than it's been communicating so far. So Mike has had to leave us to go to a meeting. Joe, I'll let you be our resident uh, Fed watcher. Oh, for, for the US? For more well, I, I don't know. Let me just speak more kind of generically on that question of kind of uh, central banks in general. And I... I was kind of laughing thinking when you asked the question, because I thought it's it's a simple but a good question. Uh, I, it, and the reason, I guess, where I come down to is that I think it's probably balanced because I'm, I'm very nervous about the near-term growth picture, and I don't think we've kind of set things right. I know, Bruce, you'll argue that we've got in our contour some, some slowing, and that, I guess, is a nod towards this, but it, it just we were burned by Delta. It wasn't as bad as we thought, but I feel like here we are in the winter months, which do tend to be bad. And you can see capacities getting hit in hospitals in the US, which we haven't really talked about that as much as Europe, where we are seeing restrictions. So all of that makes me think there's there's kind of not just downside risk, but we should be taking a bigger chunk out of the near term. 
I think Alan makes a lot of good points about the potential inflationary consequences on that in the near term. I know, Bruce, you actually take the other side of that. Uh, but there's also, I think Alan makes a good point that in the in the more medium run, it, the structural changes that it could induce, and that does force central banks' hands. So that's why I feel like I don't have a lot of confidence in our baseline, but in other words, it's a wide risk distribution, but I feel like it's kind of balanced in terms of the, 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 the policy story for next year, right? I think as you get into the following years, I think we're all on board that this notion of this kind of magical soft landing that takes place is, is kind of uh, wishful thinking, uh, but it's so far out that, you know, maybe that's uh, less, of a, less of an issue. So near term, okay. I think risks are balanced. Okay, let's bring Greg into the picture. Um, we don't have the ECB in motion, so it's a little bit of a of a of a quieter story than either the Fed or the Bank Bank of England. But uh, we did get some some news today. Uh, let's put that in context of what we've been talking about in terms of uh, the risks to the near term European outlook. But first, give us the, the message from the ECB. What are you thinking? Well, you, you, you say they're not in motion. I mean, the decisions they took today were um, a lot oh, of bits and pieces on PEP, on APP, and it's quite difficult to disentangle. Um, in big picture terms, they they ended, they are ending PEP, um, so that will come, uh, that will finish in March. Um, but I think it's also clear that they are the last remaining member of team transitory on the inflation side um, that, you know, they, they still have uh, inflation coming below the target, um, actually core averaging less than 2% also next year, when a lot of the transitory factors are still uh, exerting some upward uh, effect. Um, so they are sticking to the view that um, they are not yet done in terms of the job of bringing inflation to the target, and therefore they need to um, exit PEP very carefully, and they did announce some additional purchases to ease that transition. Um, so they beefed up um, APP in the middle of next year somewhat. Um, they also retained. Greg, how much of the how much of the balance sheet adjustments that they made is is it's not about them thinking you know macroeconomically we need to like get this forecast right so we need a little more accommodation for longer, and that's kind of the way you characterize it. There's also just more of a practical point, which is the downshift was too quickly. So they just had to smooth it out. They didn't want to be disruptive to the market. This has nothing to do with a sense that we need to be doing a little bit more emergency balance sheet expansion because our forecast isn't tailored right and team transitory and all this type of stuff. It's just, yeah. hey, we can't go from X to Y in, in one month. That, that's true. Um... But at the same time, they, they do still have their regular asset purchases, which are 20 billion a month, mm -hmm. and those are still open-ended. Um, mm -hmm. So they are running until shortly before the first rate hike, and they obviously don't know when that rate hike will be. Um, they really don't think it will be in 2022, but 2023 is in play. And they also feel a lot of uncertainty around the inflation outlook. Um, but so Greg, in terms of the way that, we got signaling from the ECB today. Um, you know, they've been saying for a while that they don't think they're going to be hiking in 2022. Do you feel like there's any shift going on in the way they're talking about risks here on, on not so much on the balance sheet, but on the rate side? Not really. Um, 
I mean, I think they were preoccupied with the near-term decisions and trying to figure out what's going on on inflation. And I think they are comfortable with the signals that they've sent on on rates. Um, that there's no no rush, and they still need to do more to actually get properly to the target. Um, so Lagarde said one eight is not two, um, referring to the staff forecast in twenty three and twenty four. So let me ask you the question, um, two, two angles of what we've talked about. How concerned are you uh, that, as Joe suggested, we might be underestimating the downside risk of growth as we move into the new year? Uh, and secondly, which is obviously related, um, you know, you've got the ECB beginning in what, mid-23 as, as, a, as a starting point for raising rates? You know, what do yeah, you think September. of- September. So, what do you think the risks of that being pushed uh, earlier uh, as we move forward here are? I'm going to uh, join Team Joe on this one. Um, I, I think it's quite balanced. I mean, I think on the inflation side, if the recovery remains on track and unemployment continues to fall pretty rapidly, um, there is a, a chance that they have to go a bit sooner. But equally, I think the the Omicron uh, variant and questions around what kind of endemic state we're heading towards, um, you know, next year and the year after in terms of uh, COVID, um, you know, does make you kind of be more careful here. Um, so, I, so I think, yeah, it's kind of two-sided. All right. I would just say that um, conditional on your GDP forecast being realized, which is a big if, of course, but you know, just keeping in mind that you got have, after a first quarter um, ding to growth to 2%, you've got the next three quarters that you're already averaging somewhere close to 5% growth. I would argue if you get that, I think the risks to my mind are very much skewed towards the inflation picture looking firmer and the ECB having to move earlier than what what we're currently forecasting and what they're guiding. Yeah, uh, I, I, so I would definitely agree with that. If our forecast is right, which is why I kind of think the risks are a bit balanced. I think the one central bank that has the most upside risk in our forecast is, is the ECB, particularly given the rest of the world is moving. I just, it's just hard to imagine. But just it, keep in mind what you're saying when you talk about the offsetting risk to, to Omicron is we're not really talking about the risk of growth being weaker in the first quarter. We're talking about a risk that growth is weaker in the first quarter that disrupts the path of where you end 2022. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I, that I think is a different conversation than do we need to take more off of Q1 growth? The real issue here is are we going to have an event here that's going to have more lasting effects? And that's where I guess I'm not you know, I'm I'm open-minded to the first quarter drag here, and I don't just quite know how to think about it in a global context where um, we haven't really considered the possibility that it spills out to to Asia. But I guess I'm still of the mind that further weakness in Q1 is not a story that takes us off the path of where we are in 22 as a whole, and that's why I'm more comfortable with our euro area growth forecast and our our U.S. growth forecast, which also has sustained above trend growth and, uh, and, and the U.K. as well. And that's why I still think the risks on, on, on both inflation and central banks, I think, are, are towards ultimately doing more than 
what they're signaling now and what we've got in our forecasts. So I will take the last word here, guys. And uh, say it ain't so. Shh, Joe, you have to be quiet. <laughs> if you're gonna let me take the last word, let me take the last word. And um, hope that we can continue this conversation, which I'm sure is gonna have lots of uh, wiggles and changes as we have to deal with the dynamics of a very, uh, I think, complicated macro uh, forecast over the near term, which uh, has this virus as well as other reasonably important uh, issues associated with it. So thanks very much and hope we can continue on the next Global Data Pod. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2021, JP Morgan, Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded in December 2021.